As we pull this uh, first picture up on the big screen, this is um, when, from around when Melissa and I f uh, first started dating, when we first, uh, and I, I want to share with you, I know, Melissa looks, so, she looks exactly the same, right? It's weird. Uh, I gained a few pounds in between. But when I was first interested in my uh, Melissa, she was the, she wasn't part of our church, she was the coordinator of the young adult ministry at our sister church, CFC Berkeley. And uh, when I realized I started getting interested in her uh, was when she had engaged me to come and speak for them uh, at a retreat. The retreat didn't work out, so instead they divided it up into uh, three um, monthly one-day uh, one retreats. And uh, when I developed interest, I realized I need to wait. I can't just ask her like during one of these speak, three speaking games, uh, which was over three months, because if she said no, be really awkward coming in or for me to just not show up right to the speaking engagements uh, because I'm petty like that. Anyways, so I had to wait three months uh, before I could ask her out after I finished all three of these speaking engagements. And so a few days after the retreat, I called her up, called her on the phone to ask her out. Ring, 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 beep. I was like, oh no, I, f I froze, right? Uh, should I just go for it and just like, uh, you know, uh, ask her out? Or is that tacky to ask her over voicemail? And so I kind of fumbled through my words and just like, uh, hi, uh, this is Josh. I'm uh, just checking in uh, to see if maybe you had any feedback about the uh, sermons that I gave, you know? And then and <laughs> kind of left it at that. And the great thing was I did not receive a call back from her. Instead, uh, she sent me a very formal email with a detailed response because many of you who know Melissa, you know she's like this, she had already taken a survey of all the, the people who had attended the retreat, uh, all the church members, including uh, how, how people felt, rated the messages and the effectiveness of the speaker and et cetera, et cetera. And I was just like, dang, this girl. So I felt kind of stuck, right? It's kind of a guessing game at this point. Should I call her again, right? Or if I do, should I wait a little bit? Is it weird to like call like, you know, like right back the next day? Or is she... By sending me this email, sending subtle signals that she's kind of rejecting me in advance, right? But just in a kind way. She's trying to, like, here's your email, here's your feedback, and doesn't, doesn't really want to talk to me. And I wonder if you have ever felt that way with God. And what I mean by that is sometimes when we're hurting and we need help or hope, it feels like a guessing game about what does God want. That same indecision and uncertainty that I felt, maybe you feel with God that you're uncertain What's your will in this? What is his will in this uh, situation? When should I move forward? When should I wait? How do I, know to, how do I trust God in this circumstance? And so that's what we're answering this morning as you turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 3. For those of you who don't have one, there's some under your seats as well, every other seat. It's also going to be up on the big screen, so don't worry about it. Uh, we're in this series called Redeemed, uh, where we are learning and discovering that God's providence works alongside our faithfulness to bring about his redemptive plan in the midst of life's pain. That providence is about how though our suffering is great in this life, our Savior is greater and that he works out everything in the end for our redemptive good. And not just for in the big picture story of the Bible or for kings and nations, but in the everyday details of normal people's lives like you and I, like Ruth and Naomi, as we love and trust and follow him. And so, uh, you know that this is a time in the, in the biblical history of faithlessness and famine. And we're going to see it from the perspective and pain of two average people, uh, Naomi, whose husband and two sons have died, and her childless Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. And their problem is that they have no food and they have no family anymore. 
And so the way Naomi frames it in chapter 1, verse 21, is that the Lord has brought me back empty. That feeling of emptiness. But then God shows up in Israel through the invisible hand of providence to reverse the famine. And by faith, Naomi and Ruth go back to God, go back to his people, go back to his blessing, and they find favor in the fields of this man named Boaz, who turns out he's a bachelor, and he's also what's called a kinsman redeemer. And we'll talk about what that means later. And so in their minds, and in Naomi's mind in particular, she's thinking about, could this be the providence of God? That on the one hand, he's provided food for us through Boaz, and now is he providing family for us? Should we stay or should we go in the direction that God is pointing us? Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our, our relative with whose young women you are working with? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place that he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and, be, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. What a weird passage. This is not a biblical dating advice for you, for those of you who are, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. But what's happening here is, we saw at the end of chapter 2, it is the end of the harvest, and it is also the end of Ruth's time hanging around Boaz and his field. And this man has made no move. But Naomi knows, the mother-in-law knows, that he still needs to do uh, winnowing at the threshing floor. And I know you read that and you're like, oh, that's so interesting. What does that actually mean? And so what that's talking about is once you do all the harvesting, they would have this hard outdoor surface and they would spread the grain all over it, all this, all this massive grain that they had. And then they would use their feet or oxen or tools to trample the grain, loosing the edible parts from the stalk and from the husk. And then they would toss it like a salad with this giant pitchfork called a winnowing fork. And what happens is, the chaff, all the useless stuff, would blow away in the wind, and the heavier grain would fall back to the floor, which they would collect. Now, this process takes multiple days of work, and in this time, I mentioned to you, of faithlessness and lawlessness and sinfulness, neighbors would often steal from one another, and so uh, oftentimes when you would do the threshing, and it's so much work that you wouldn't finish in one day, so people would sleep at the threshing floor in order to guard the grain and get an early start the next day. So, in verses 1 and 2, Naomi, you can see the wheels turning in her head, uh, like many mothers-in-law. Uh, and she's thinking about, well, if Boaz is going to be there, and she says in verse 1, should I not seek rest for you, Ruth? Now, this seems like an innocuous statement, but it's referring back all the way to this prayer that she said in chapter 1, verse 9, where she says almost exactly the same thing. She asks God to give Ruth rest. I'm seeking rest for Ruth. Rest and redemption, specifically with a new husband. And so it seems that in her mind she senses maybe Boaz could be God's providential answer to that prayer. And so she comes up with a plan of action. So in verses 3 and 4, she instructs Ruth, uh, I don't want you to just get cleaned up to impress Boaz. That's actually not what the purpose of the text is there. But in Hebrew society back then, what she's telling Ruth is it is time 
for you to put away your widow's mourning clothes. Because remember, she's, she's married to one of uh, Naomi's sons who had passed away. It's time for you to put away your widow's mourning clothes and to anoint yourself with oil to refresh yourself and be made clean and, uh, before the Lord. Because it's sending a message that you are, I am done with mourning and I am available for marriage. Because all this time she's been working in the field in her mourning clothes. Then, Ruth, I want you to go to that threshing floor with your coat because you're going to be staying overnight, out of sight, until Boaz is done with his dinner in this day. Now, the starting point here is this is a big deal for Ruth. I know we read this story, it's kind of like, oh, of course, you know, it's kind of like this happy, almost fairy taleish love story. But I want you to think in human terms, in your terms, that for this young woman, she's been married for 10 years and her husband dies. She goes to a foreign land and she's... <clears throat> Excuse me. This is holy and healthy for her to mourn suffering, as we all should. And yet, there are times that when we are mourning and grieving, we can get trapped in our grief because of guilt. What I mean is, I'm not supposed to move on with my life. I'm not supposed to be happy because of this terrible thing, this terrible loss. I don't deserve that. You see, when we suffer in this life, pain doesn't just go away by itself. As much as people tell you that time heals all wounds, that's not true. Pain often stays with us. But the first step to redeeming it is when we allow grief to move from the forefront, where it's always on our face, in our faces, to the background. And we do that by taking a first step, a first risk in a new direction. So this is a big deal for Ruth to finally take off her mourning clothes, the clothes of mourning, and move in a different direction. And so Naomi proposes to her, why don't you uh, wait and go see Boaz, let him eat his chicken wings or whatever he's eating, uh, knock back a few drinks, and then uh, when he, let him go to bed, and then when he does, just uncover his feet and just lay down. When he goes to bed, lay down at his feet and uncover his feet and, um, and uh, just do whatever he tells you. <laughs> I don't know, that sounds kind of sketchy, right? This is, not, this is not the kind of advice, bad mother-in-law, this is not the kind of advice you want to give to your daughter, like, I would never allow my daughter to go out and uh, meet a man this way. Um, I don't think this is the right kind of advice, and that's not the, not the takeaway that you should have uh, when you leave this place, like um, for how to, how to meet, get a man or how to get a wife. On the other hand, what's happening here is that Naomi's proposing these things uh, because it's inappropriate for Ruth to simply just come forward and say, like, hey, man, uh, I'd like to marry you. Like in their culture, it would be very inappropriate for her to directly approach Boaz that way. So instead, what's happening here is it's giving Ruth the opportunity to come to Boaz privately, vulnerably, humbly, and simply be able to say to him, I'm communicating my availability. So she's not proposing to him, but she's proposing that he proposed to her. Does that make sense? And so uh, it's inviting Boaz to take a risk to take the initiative to marry her and to redeem her. And we'll talk about what that means. And I want you to picture in your mind, do you know that this is the same with how you and I approach God? That we can't force God to fix our pains and our problems by our insistence or by our performance, our ability or our morality, but instead we come to him just like Ruth does to Boaz, humbly, vulnerably, letting him know here is our need and trusting him to redeem us, to make, make our situation good and holy for him. 
But for Ruth, this is a tremendous risk. She is crossing a number of taboos in their society. That this is a woman asking a man. This is a Moabite outsider, hostile to the Jewish people, asking a Hebrew. This is a woman who is a little bit younger, and he is a little bit older. And I want you to picture, at the threshing floor, there are only men who stay there and sleep there overnight. And here is this lone woman, out late, in the middle of the night, in a conservative Middle Eastern culture. In fact, Hosea chapter 9, verse 1 tells us that prostitutes would go and solicit men at the threshing floor. So you can imagine how dangerous this is for this young woman to be out there and the message that it might send. What if he rejects her? What if he takes it the wrong way? What if he takes advantage of her? So she's risking a lot of her reputation, her safety, her integrity. And yet, Naomi tells her, do whatever he tells you. Why? Because all this time, like a good mother-in-law or a potential mother-in-law, she's been observing Boaz. She knows Boaz. She trusts Boaz. And so we see in verses 5 and 6 that Ruth does exactly what she says because she trusts her mother-in-law's wisdom. She trusts Boaz's character. She trusts God's providence in this issue. And so the big idea of this whole passage this morning is that in our pain and in our loss, when God providentially provides an opportunity for us to experience help and hope and healing, that we can take risks for redemption when we trust the character of the Redeemer. Did you catch that? It's the kind of trust that uh, this Christian writer uh, named Ethel Hare describes. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a double mastectomy. I thought that that settled the matter. But unfortunately, two months later, she discovered, the doctors discovered that the cancer had already spread throughout her body. It was probably too late and terminal. And one of her friends kind of stammered through the question, well, how do you, how do you feel about God now? And she says, he has made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He has given me a joy that I've never known before. And it's not that I have to work at it. It just comes even amidst the tears and the suffering. And he's taught me no matter how good my, my genes or my diet or how much I take care of myself, that he's leading me on whatever journey he chooses. And yet he will never leave me for even a moment on that journey, even during the painful part. And that he's planned it all step by step, preparing me for this moment when the doctor dropped this last shoe. God is good, no matter my diagnosis or my prognosis or my fearfulness. And hear this, I want you to hear what she says. The key to knowing that God is good is simply in knowing him. I love that. How do you know if God is good? Because if you actually get to know him, you will see and experience how good he is. And so when we talk about in this text, taking a risk, it doesn't mean being foolish or reckless and then wondering why your situation has gotten worse, as many people do. Taking a risk doesn't mean being passive or paralyzed and calling that trusting God. It does mean that when you turn to God for help and hope, that you and I can confidently act on the opportunity that God gives us because we know God, we trust the character of God the same way that Naomi and Ruth know and trust Boaz. 
that we know because he is good and kind and compassionate and powerful and sovereign that he can and will transform a situation that's terrible into something that is beautiful because he's sovereign. He knows everything. He has authority over everything. And also because his sovereignty is balanced with his goodness. He cares about you. He's kind to you. He's for us, not against us. And so you can take risks when we trust the character of the Redeemer. Now, I think you're getting a picture. Yes, I I can take some risks for God when it provides me an opportunity uh, for Him to redeem a difficult situation. But how far can I go, and how do I know when I should stop moving or trying to take a risk or moving forward? Verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she, Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. This is such a weird passage. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do, what you, uh, do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. <coughs> Excuse me. So what's happening here? In verse 7 through 8, Boaz goes to sleep. Ruth slips in. She airs out them toes and lays down next to them. And then Boaz is startled awake in the middle of the night. My feet are cold. There's a strange lady. What's happening here? Who are you? It's a very weird situation. And so in verse 9, Ruth declares, and I want you to catch this because this is the first time it happens in this, in this story, that Ruth declares, I am Ruth, not Ruth the Moabite outsider. I am Ruth, your servant. In other words, I am not this outside person, an enemy of God and his people. I want to be your servant. I want to be part of your household, that I've already joined your faith. Now I'm ready to join your family. And then she reminds Boaz, remember when you prayed in chapter 2, verse 12, that I would find refuge under God's mighty wings. Boaz, be his wing by having me for your wife as my kinsman redeemer. Now, uh, we've talked about this. Some of you weren't here last time. But a kinsman redeemer is a term that comes from Leviticus chapter 25 as well as Deuteronomy chapter 25. When you were suffering loss, you were in danger, in debt, in slave, that your, uh, a male kin in, from your family line could qualify. They didn't have to, but they could deliver you from servitude and poverty by paying a legal redemption price to set you free, to buy back your life, to restore your family property, and if you were a single person, single woman, be married into his family. And so here's a moment of truth. You are a redeemer. Spread your wing over me just like you prayed that God would do. Be God's answer to that prayer. How does Boaz respond? In verses 10 and 11, a resounding, yes, you know, this woman, I I will do whatever you ask because you have shown God's hesed, his kindness, his loving kindness, the same way that Boaz has been pouring out God's loving kindness on her. 
And he's of this mindset, you know, I'm, he's kind, you can hear him kind of fumbling through it and explaining himself. Uh, I just want you to know I didn't pursue you all this time, not because I'm not interested, but I just thought you were out of my league because there's all these younger, you know, better, handsome bachelors that were available, so I didn't think you would want to be interested in an older guy like me. And so remember in chapter 2, verse 1, that it was declared that Boaz is this man who is worthy, worthy of our admiration and our respect because of his character and his faith, and that he declares this worthy man that this woman, Ruth, is also a worthy woman, worthy for her initiative and her integrity, for her faithfulness and her faith. And so it looks like we're headed for this fairy tale ending, but there's a complication. Verse 12, now, I didn't just hold off from proposing to you because there's better prospects, but it turns out there's another distant relative and redeemer who's next in line in the clan of Elimelech, ahead of me in line. So you can imagine Ruth's, I I want you to just picture being Ruth. Her emotions, this is a roller coaster for her. Her emotions are soaring, like her fortunes have turned. I was poor, I was homeless, I had nothing, I'm an outsider, and now everything is turning around. It seems like there's a real God in heaven who cares about me, and you can imagine her falling silent. That momentary taste of hope turning to ash in her mouth. Now, this is also a moment of great potential despair and danger also for Boaz. I don't know about you, but it would be tempting to shortcut or short-circuit the will of God. So I want you to picture if you're a young single man and you have this beautiful woman come to you in the middle of the night, crawl into your, like by your bed at your feet and say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. A lot of guys might take that the wrong way or misuse it. And so you can imagine like... In Boaz's mind, this beautiful woman, I would love for her to be my wife. Maybe if I sleep with her, then I can make her mine. Maybe if I intimidate or lie to that other man, I can get what I want. And I think about how often we try to get a good thing, but we do it the wrong way. That many of us will come through the side door of sin to try to force God's hand to give us a good thing. And instead end up cheating ourselves out of his blessing. But I want you to look at this man. In verse, instead, in verse 13, he says, stay the night. But I don't mean that inappropriately, but respectfully. Not to take advantage of you, but to protect you from the uh, sexual assaults of other men and the gossip of women. <coughs> and if this other man is willing to redeem you, then we're going to follow the law on this. I'm not going to try to circumvent God's will. I'm not going to try to sin to get what I want. Boaz obeys God's law, he honors Ruth's integrity, he trusts that the providential hand of God to work despite the challenging circumstances so that he can remain in the place where God blesses. Because you get blessed in the house of obedience, not shacked up with sin. So going back to our original question, how far should we go when we're pursuing God's help and hope? That we Risk for redemption also requires faithfully remaining within the boundaries of God's will and His Word. Do you know the difference between risking in God's providence or working and, or versus working against God's providence? Because what it's not is, it's not maybe God will solve my 
money problems through this loophole if I just cheat a little on my taxes and my finances. It's not God will deliver me from my grief by me burying it in a bottle. It's not God saving me from my heartache by dating someone who doesn't love and worship Jesus or by being sexually active outside of marriage with someone who does. How far do we go to make sense or to make peace with our pain? Your redemption from God is never found in contradiction to his word. So I want you to think about as you, in times when we're feeling hurt, it's easy. Sometimes we're thrashing about looking for help and hope from God. It's easy to cheat. And I want to tell you, you'll never receive God's blessing in that place. Take the hard road, but the faithful road is worth it. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing, right? If you, you're dating, uh, don't just date, the, date your, the girl. Make sure that you're kind to the mother, potential mother-in-law. And so she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Verse 14, Boaz sends Ruth home before sunrise because she doesn't want... Uh, anyone to see her and get the wrong idea. And men, I want to encourage you, uh, don't just protect a woman's sexual integrity, but also protect their reputation. And to prove that he means biz business, in verse 15, he tells her, hold open your, your coat. So take off your cloak, hold it open, and he proceeds to pour out and fill it up entirely with these six measures of barley. It's enough to feed her and her mother-in-law for several weeks. Why does he do this? I know some of you are thinking, well, of course, to bribe the mother-in-law, right? Or maybe it's for a, like a, a wedding dowry. That's not what's happening here. Remember, in verse 16, we see that Naomi, she's been anxiously awaiting all this time, right? Because her daughter-in-law, Ruth, has been out all night, which means it either went really well or it went really bad. And so the first thing she asks is, how did things go, my daughter? And then Ruth recounts all that Boaz has said and done. And did you notice... Did you notice that what Ruth, it doesn't say in the text, it doesn't emphasize the marriage proposal. That's not what she talks about most. Or the obstacle of another kinsman redeemer. Instead, we get this new information that the answer to why does Boaz pour out all this grain into her cloak, verse 17, Ruth says, well, Boaz said to me that I gave you all this barley because you must not go back empty-handed. Who, for who? The mo your mother-in-law. Who's all this grain for? The mother-in-law. Do you remember I mentioned that Naomi said in chapter 1, verse 21, that after all this loss of her husband and her two sons and this famine that they've experienced, that there's bitterness in her heart because she left home full of hope, but she felt that the Lord had brought her back, here's the same word as Boaz used, empty. So all this time, God's invisible hand of providence is at work to reverse and restore and redeem her emptiness. 
And she's used this word a few times. And so you can imagine when she hears that this is what Boaz has said. It's as if God had kind of whispered that word into Boaz's heart. And, and for Naomi to be able to hear it, her heart is quickening. She recognizes the significance and the providence of God in Boaz's words and in his provision. And so it leads her to respond with a quiet assurance in verse 18. Now we wait, my daughter, and we trust that this man will settle the matter. You see, in the hurts of life, God provides us opportunities to take risks towards healing and hope. But there's going to come a point where you can't take any more risks. You can't move forward anymore. You can do no more. And you're going to have to sit and wait and trust in the Lord. And you may feel during those moments when you cannot do anything that God has left me empty-handed. But like Naomi, as we wait for redemption, God assures us with confidence by filling our emptiness. Dave Smallbone knew that feeling, this Christian man who uh, God had led to work in promoting Christian concerts in his homeland of of Australia, where only 5% of people say they believe in Jesus. Now, this type of work was not very successful there because when too few fans filled the seats of a major tour that he was promoting, he personally ended up $250,000 in deficit. His home got repossessed, and as a father of six children, this loss forced him to look for work elsewhere, even though he thought this was God's calling for him. Fortunately, a top Christian artist offered him a a job in Nashville, in Tennessee, in the United States. So he sold all that was left of his furniture and his possessions and uh, uh, bought, purchased plane tickets to the United States. (coughs) A few weeks after his arrival, they informed him that the position was no longer available. That's messed up, huh, Christians? Empty-handed, he felt so depressed he couldn't even get out of bed for several days. And when he finally explained to his wife and to his kids what's happening, they, as a family, collectively got down on their knees and started praying, asking God for help, for redemption. Redemption didn't come at first, but what did come is they were surprised as God providentially provided just bags of groceries from random people, a minivan, odd jobs for this dad to do, opportunities to see a God in heaven who cares and provides and is involved in their lives. And he began to experience as God was continuously filling that empty space of his pantry and his budget and his home and his heart, he began to experience contentment in Christ, even confidence in Christ to to wait and see how is he going to use this situation to transform his family and also bless other people. But that empty place in his heart began to fill up. And then the biggest surprise of all came a recording contract for his oldest daughter, Rebecca. She was only aged 15 and got a recording contract. And so this young woman recorded her first album, but instead of using uh, her family name, Smallbone, she used an old family name, St. James. This young woman's name is Rebecca St. James. And she became one of the hottest Christian artists during the 90s, selling over 1.8 million albums and taking the story of what God was doing in their family to be able to bless hundreds and thousands of people. Christianity Today magazine named her as one of the top 
50 evangelical leaders of influence under the age of 40 at the time. And what's interesting for her father, Dave, the one who I'm telling this story about, is that that very area that caused the greatest pain in Dave's life, God put it to work to redeem him by making him a promoter of his own daughter's sold-out concerts. Now, you should be sitting there and thinking to yourself, that is an amazing story, but that kind of thing doesn't happen to me. Doesn't it, though? I want to think about when you're hurt, those times that God fills the space of your immediate needs, those times that God fills the emptiness in your heart with his peace, with his presence, with his purpose, with his joy. Either way, whether God is filling that emptiness of our tangible needs or our emotional needs, either way, there's a God who is for us, who fills our emptiness today so that we'll trust his redemption is coming tomorrow. So in all the loss that Naomi and Ruth have experienced, they see that there's a sovereign and good God at work through all these people, through the risky counsel of Naomi, through the risky faithfulness of Ruth, through the risky kindness of Boaz. Because the flip side of the providence of God is that there are times we need to take bold risks if we want to experience God's redemption of our difficult situation. And what we're not saying is to make foolish decisions. That's what Elimelech, Naomi's husband, did, and it ruined his family. We want to live a life of faith, not folly. But what will give you the courage to take bold risks in the direction of redemption is when we trust the character of our great Redeemer because God is for us. And it's okay to plan and have all your contingency plans. That's all fine. Naomi plans and she prays. But we also need to take a step of faith to put our trust in a God over the plans that we have. And this is not just Ruth's story of love and redemption. This is ours. You see, Ruth comes to Boaz as you and I come to Jesus. And what does she say? Will you redeem me? Then who does all the work? Boaz. That's a picture of Jesus, our greater Boaz, that he redeems us at great cost, much greater than the money and grain that Boaz spent. That he lives, he dies, he rises to give himself as this gift to us, to bring us joy in our sorrow, to give us purpose out of our pain, to give us life out of death, to give us redemption out of our ruin. And so whatever you've lost, would you seek him? Would you honor and trust God by taking maybe that next step forward to redeem that pain? Honor and trust him by staying within his boundaries. And when you can do no more, honor and trust him by sitting and waiting. And as you experience him filling your emptiness today, you can trust that his redemption is coming tomorrow. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word that gives us hope. Whatever desperate situations we've faced this past year, big or small, may we come before you. May we trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of a great Redeemer, a greater Redeemer. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord. Whatever pain we're facing, whatever trials, whatever loss, whatever challenges, it's okay to sit and rest and mourn. And when you say we're ready, give us the courage to take that next, next risk, to trust 
and the character of a good father, a good redeemer. May we experience your goodness in our lives today, filling all the empty spaces, being our savior, being our redeemer. Amen.